this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey, this episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System. I had the opportunity to interview Stephanie Breedlove the other day. She sold her $9 million payroll company for a cool $54 million. How does she do it? She focused on the eight things that drive company value. Things like what we call the Switzerland structure, monopoly control, recurring revenue, all things you're going to evaluate in your own business using the Value Builder score. It takes about 15 minutes to complete the survey. Go to valuebuilder.com. You know, one of the biggest challenges I think of running a company is finding the money, time, resources to build a killer product. And my next guest, Brian Farella, found the money by partnering with a customer of his, MGM, the big, huge casino operator. And his deal was this. He said, listen, I'm going to develop this software for you, and I'm not going to charge you the typical customization fees that I would normally charge for making this just right for you. But in return, what I want is the IP. I want to own the product at the end because I reason that if you want it, other casino operators are also going to want the same features and security features and so forth that you are demanding. And so that was his deal. That was the prid pro quo he negotiated with MGM. He ultimately ended up owning his product at the end of selling it to, or licensing, I should say, to MGM, and went on to sell his $3 million business for more than five times top-line revenue. To tell you the rest of the story, here is Brian Farella. So you're working with casinos that have the government coming down on them saying, hey, we need to make sure that people aren't laundering money through casinos. And you built some software to help them do that? Correct. Exactly. So uh, as I was uh, mentioning, the casino industry is regulated as, as, a, as a banking institution, essentially, and they have to adhere to certain anti-money laundering rules and regulations that really have been in, in place since the 9-11 uh, event, which tried to minimize the uh, financing uh, to terrorist organizations worldwide, the United so, States created this process to do that. So if I'm a bad guy, it, mm-hmm. you know, pre your software, I could walk into uh-huh. a casino with a hundred grand uh, you know, of bad money in my, in my pocket. I could put it down on the table, get chips, and then say, hey, I had a great day at this casino and walk out with a, you know, a check that I could take to the bank. Is that Correct. basically what they were doing? That's one example. There are a number of different ways to, to, to launder money through the casinos, but essentially that's exactly, uh, exactly what they were trying to prevent. And unfortunately, from a manual perspective, it was very difficult to do that because uh, funds move very fast in the casino on a daily basis. And, and one of the biggest challenges is uh, obviously they're, they're primarily in a, a whole, uh, an all-cash-based uh, enterprise. And uh, the majority of individuals walking around inside the property that are playing and such are anonymous. That makes it very challenging. Right. Yeah. No, for sure. And and don't always want to be recognized for sure. So you built the software. Correct. How did you sell the software? I mean, was it a, a you know cloud based X dollars a month, or was it you know how did you structure it? So uh, it's an interesting question because it, it actually uh, evolved over time. Initially, as I mentioned, we started with 
essentially this custom application for uh, one casino. And as it turned out, the uh, controller of that casino knew a controller at another casino in, in, in the Midwest as well and put me in touch with him. He said, yeah, we need this as well. Uh, can you just, uh, you know, install it here for us, charge us some little licensing fee or whatever. And we said, sure, why not? And he said, hey, by the way, uh, Nevada is uh, changing their state regulation to be parallel to the, the, uh, the federal regulation uh, within the next eight months. You might want to go out and talk to the folks at MGM Resorts. And that was like, wow, you know, right to the top right away, uh, 15 huge properties, you know, Las Vegas, et cetera. So uh, we ended up going out there, doing a presentation, uh, probably like a, a lot of folks do when they're selling software. Um, we had a nice PowerPoint presentation that essentially uh, looked like what the software would do. And we clicked between PowerPoint slides and show them how it worked. And uh, they bought, they basically bought the whole thing. So uh, we ended up licensing to, to them as our first real big customer. And uh, the, the beauty of, of regulatory related software products or services is that because the government requires them to do it, no matter what their budget is, they have to do it. So it was one of those unique uh, opportunities. I want to understand that the first uh, casino you worked with prior to MGM, you yeah. said you built it on a custom basis. Correct. Did you own the underlying code? Did your contract with them ensure that you had the rights to resell or did you have to negotiate that after the fact? Yeah, no, we actually had that as, as part of our um, agreement. And you, you're, you're going to be hitting on a number of things that you learn along the way that uh, you need to be cognizant of when you're you know, planning to exit with uh, something like a software product, protecting it, you know, intellectual property related things. So yes, uh, we actually had the rights to reuse it. And it, as it turned out, the initial application that we used, we ended up scrapping the custom one and actually building what we really wanted to do uh, from scratch for uh, MGM Resorts. And we only had six months to do it. And then what's fascinating is we built this significant enterprise-wide platform that integrate with all their software applications, their slot systems, their table game systems, their credit card cash advance systems, their check cashing systems. We had to do all that and uh, do it in a way that was real time across the casino floor at every one of those locations by July 1st uh, of that year. And uh, it was quite an undertaking. Uh, they paid us a, a pretty penny for it. So that was the big break we needed. And from there, uh, we kind of grew the company following that model where we had a um, initial upfront license fee that was based on the number of, of uh, locations the software would be used in a casino, as well as the number of users that would be touching it on the back of house for the reporting that they'd be doing. And then on an annual basis, we had a, a maintenance fee that we would, would, we would receive every year. So it became kind of that recurring revenue and then also an implementation uh, process, you know, professional services to actually put it in place. So that was our initial model, which survived really up until about three years ago when we were finding that uh, the big casinos had really already, they've all pretty much invested in this type of a, of a solution. So now the, the medium-sized casinos and small ones were being asked to do the same things by the government, but they couldn't afford an on-premise version of this type of a solution that was this sophisticated and this robust. So we ended up creating a, uh, a software as a service model for the smaller casinos. We were the, the only ones in the industry to do that. And uh, they paid a monthly fee once they did their first initial installation and training, uh, then they just had a monthly uh, service fee that they basically paid um, un 
until they were done using the software, which they never, you know, ever, no one ever stopped using it. So it was your traditional, you know, monthly service model. Got it. So how did you retain the rights to the underlying code and the IP uh, with MGM? I, I get how you would have done it with a small casino, not terribly savvy, yep. but MGM is Correct. a savvy company. Yeah. So what we ended up doing with MGM is we, we sold them on the fact that we had this application um, kind of out of the box. And what we agreed to do is we said, look, you, whatever you need, we know the rest of the industry would appreciate and use because they were, they were really kind of the gold standard in terms of how to operate uh, casinos. So we figured whatever they told us was a requirement in terms of how the system should behave, how it should collect information, how it should report it, et cetera. We said we were going to do that and make it part of the core product. So they didn't have to pay customization fees or anything that, along those lines. So we treated it as a kind of an out-of-the-box uh, licensed product that already existed, but we agreed to do enhancements for them that weren't considered customization. So it became a part of the core application. So it was more, became more of a traditional you know, licensing of an enterprise software uh, product. Got it. So what they would ordinarily have paid for, all these customizations, you're saying, hey, we'll throw it all in for free, but in return, we need to own the product at the end of the day. Correct. It's a licensing of a, of, and they're used to that. You know, they do that with all these products that are out there. Got it. So you're obviously building this thing to sell. If you if you had the foresight in mind to think these things through from the very beginning, were no you question. were you you were thinking of selling? Why was that your end game? Well, uh, one of the things that you know I've learned in the technology space is that you know that you have significant leverage and significant uh, differences in multiples if you're you know, selling a service company versus a product company versus a technology platform company. So there's a lot of different um, outcomes that you could uh, uh, kind of work towards. And, and we figured from day one, if we're going to build a platform that becomes kind of the industry standard that we we're not at some point going to have the resources to take it to uh, the next level and to continue to create and build brand new products without some, re- some additional resources behind us. So we knew from the beginning that, you know, we'll go ahead and get a footprint We'll establish ourselves as an industry leader and then position ourselves for someone to come in and, and strategic, a strategic buyer to come in and, and pick it up and, and move it forward. Who's so the, that was kind of our thought process. Okay. And, and who's the we? Who are the fellow shareholders in this company? Um, well, actually, there was a, a, a group of individuals in the Detroit area. Um, I was the primary. Uh, they, they had a, a software company that did accounting software implementations. So initially... What they brought to the table was some of the initial installation and training assistance, as well as some marketing. And then another partner out of the Grand Rapids area brought some of the development skills and development resources to the table. And then um, my myself and, and my, my small organization, we, we basically ran the whole company from day one. And these partners of yours, you, mm-hmm. you chose to sh- you know, share equity with the company with them? Correct. That's is, right. And and mm-hmm. in retrospect, like, how do you feel about that? Because I think a lot of our listeners would be, you know, thinking like, like, should I be sharing equity with key employees or with key strategic partners? Right. Is that something mm-hmm. that, you know, like, how do you feel, you know, after, at the end of the day, after all said and done about those decisions now? So looking back uh, at the beginning, it was very helpful because, you know, you, you need to get resources inexpensively if you don't have a, 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 a lot of startup capital to use. So, since it was most of people's time, that was that was helpful. Um, but as time goes on, one of the things that uh, you know you, you start to look at is it's what's the contribution going forward, 
And I, I think if you were to rethink it, if I were to rethink it, it'd be saying, okay, you know, during the first year, you're going to be using these resources. So you should be entitled to X equity that we discussed, but thereafter we'll be hiring our own resources, et cetera. Uh, it doesn't seem to make sense that you retain that same uh, share of equity if that's what happens without really offering any additional resources into the pool. I mean, they basically can just sit back and, and ride it out. So that's something that, you know, you're, you're always struggling with, with the startups is, you know, what do you, who, who can we get involved early? That's willing to help we'll give them some equity, but then what's the, the back end like for them? Are they still involved? If they're not involved. How does that change their equity, et cetera. So that's a learning experience. So you, you would have it structured it in a way that they might've become more diluted over time as their contribution Correct. became less. How would you structure that? I, I'd be curious to know, just out of personal curiosity. Yeah. Uh, and it's one of those things where it's almost like you'd have to look, and we've talked about this before on, on, on an annual basis and say, okay, you know, what, what's your involvement going forward? Um, and you have to do this from the beginning. That's the only way you could establish this. Um, it, it's, it's something where you look at the, the value that everybody's bringing to the table. So for example, if, I, if I'm going to continue on and, and run the company, there's a couple of aspects to that, right? One is, you have to pay uh, a CEO or someone to manage and run the company. So that's, that's distinctly separate from someone who's a role of a shareholder. So in my case, I was both. So we actually separated those into two different kind of comp buckets, if you will. But then the equity itself for the, the other uh, members, um, there, there's ways to, I guess, structure, um, you know, dilution going forward with either, you know, capital calls or, uh, capital call with the concept of value that you're bringing to the table. Um, so it's not something we've, we've formally structured, but that's the kind of thinking that, uh, you know, I've seen, I'm in another company right now, we're kind of going through the same thing early on. You have a group that's donating a lot of energy and effort, but as time goes on, they kind of fall off. So how do you, you know, kind of address that? And we're, we're working through some ideas on that one right now. Interesting. Interesting. So take us through to the next sort of stage. At some point, you decided you wanted to sell. Uh, what, what was that like? What, was there a triggering moment that, that, that made you realize now was the right time? Yeah. So, and, and this kind of goes back to my comment a few, few minutes ago. There's, there was going to come a point we knew this industry, it's, it's really unique because it's, it's heavily regulated. It's really hard to become a, a, a vendor in that industry because you have to be licensed by every jurisdiction that you bring your products into. So the barrier entry is pretty significant. And on top of that, 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 that additional administrative overhead, if you will, of the industry, you know, that, that costs money, costs time, costs resources. So uh, eventually, as you're starting to enhance your product or look to, to build new products, which we are always looking for how to build new products and what products make the most sense that we got to a point where we said, look, we, we can incrementally enhance our products or we can incrementally uh, create some small new product, but there's a need in the marketplace for, you know, at the, just to use an example at the time that uh, we were really seriously thinking about this, we had incubated four new products that the industry was going to need on a kind of a shoestring budget, if you will, and then to really take those products to the next step, to get them certified, to get them approved by the laboratories and all that, it was going to be significant investment. So we said, well, we either can go out and try and raise money to do it ourselves or find a strategic buyer 
who has the resources, the wherewithal, the, the, the footprint of the industry already in place, the sales team, all those things that we can then push these products through, that'd be the fastest way to get them in the marketplace and therefore the fastest way to get a return on them. So th there came a point really about three years ago, mid-2014, where we said, we've got these new products we want to get out. We're not going to be able to do it ourselves. We don't want to hire a huge you know, sales and marketing team. We don't want to bring on all these new developers. And we just said, maybe it's time to go find somebody and uh, let them basically purchase the intellectual property and let them go out and take it in the marketplace. So how big that was the moment. How big a company are you at this point, 2014? About 15 people. Oh, wow. So relatively small, still kind of revenue? Yep. Uh, yeah, somewhere in the 3 million range. Got it. So so a relatively uh, small and nimble team. Uh -huh. um, and and, and that, what was the next step? So did you hire a banker? Uh, did you do it yourself? Like, what was the process like? Yeah, so then that was actually a huge learning experience. Um, what ended up happening is during 2014, the early part of 2014, the industry was starting to notice us. Uh, in, in, a, in a unique way, we were starting to get approached by some of these uh, industry players that we had written integrations to their software. We had uh, been working side by side with them, with their customers. And we had been approached by a couple different uh, industry organizations that had an interest in either some sort of a joint venture or a flat out, you know, purchase, et cetera. So we said, okay, well, time out. We, we're not ready to do that ourselves. Um, coming from the EO track, you know, I, I learned there's definitely things you know how to do and things you don't know how to do. And we didn't know how to, how to sell uh, a, a technology company at the time. So we ended up uh, locating, we have, actually, we uh, interviewed a couple of different uh, M&A firms and we located one that really seemed to fit our uh, profile, you know, our core values, um, the size and the knowledge, et cetera. And uh, they were actually out of North Carolina, out of Charlotte. I got, I got connected to them through the EO network, actually. And they've done this many times. So they, they basically ran point on it. But obviously, along the way, it was my job. Uh, it was my project to actually, you know, make this all come together. So for the course of a year, plus maybe a month or so, I worked with them. And I was pretty much doing all the, all the work to try and pull everything together they felt they needed to make this come together. But the benefit of having that, that third party was they were the ones that could do some of the negotiation. They were kind of uh, keeping me out of you know, kind of the emotional side of it. And uh, they did a really nice job of kind of acting as that point person for so, us with them. So they're like an M&A firm, mergers and acquisitions Correct. firm. Got uh -huh. it. And, and you said there you know, lots of learning for you. What's the, what was the biggest learning you took away from, from hiring negotiating the contract with the M&A firm, mm -hmm. you know, hiring them, identifying them, any sure. big sort of nuggets there? Yeah, I think what I found that they were really helpful at doing was they knew how to get to the right people in these candidate, uh, you know, acquirer organizations. So, and their whole point was, and I, I agree 100%, is we wanted to create a kind of a marketplace for our company, not just one, you know, go, go to one person to try and work a deal, go to as many as you could and basically understand then the value of the company truly with several potential suitors uh, all at the same time. So they did a good job of making that happen, which, you know, obviously increased the value significantly. 
in uh, what uh, others are willing to pay, and particularly when they're you're, they're competitors, right? So the some of the suitors were competitors to each other, and they didn't want one to get us, and they would be out. So it was really an interesting dynamic. What was the thought process that you went through to identify the the likely acquirers? What sort of questions did you ask yourself to figure out the long list of potential people to go to? So one of the things that uh, I mentioned a little bit ago was it was important to us to be able to find a strategic buyer that could very quickly get our products into their channels. You know, they would have a sales team, they would have, you know, support organization, development organization. So an organization that could, could basically uh, get our, our products uh, out to a much larger group of customers than we could have done on our own. So that was definitely one aspect of it. The other was they had to be uh, licensed. And this was an interesting uh, conversation we had to have because one of our new products that we built, that we had a patent that was uh, um, in progress for at the time, we had uh, created a mobile uh, product that allowed uh, the slot floor attendants to pay jackpots at the slot machines. When a patron hit a jackpot, they wouldn't have to do any paperwork. And the paperwork would take like anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes before someone got paid their jackpot. And it was really a, a difficult process. So we, we basically allowed them to do it on this mobile device in a paperless manner and it got people paid and back to, back to gambling again quicker, which was a tremendous opportunity for the casinos. Well, as it turns out, that product put our company into a new licensing realm, if you will. We had to have some special gaming licensing now for, for that product. And that, that process alone, as I might have mentioned earlier, some of these certifications and, and testing lab uh, requirements add a significant administrative cost to these products. And we were not in a position at the time to really go out and get those licenses in all the jurisdictions because it was very expensive. So that was another key strategic requirement of ours is they had to have the licenses to take the product. So you're looking for people who have the licenses, you know, that, are, that, are, that have a sort of background in the gaming industry. Correct. Exactly right. Because that's a very tough process and it's very expensive to do. And so give us a sense of the numbers. So like how many, how many companies were you in serious negotiations with by the time you, you, uh, you locked into one? So there were, we started with probably eight and then there were three that were really more the, the ones that stepped up to the table and said, yeah, we really aren't are going to pursue this. And then it came down to the one at the very end there. Got it. So, so the eight was the long list of potential strategics included eight firms. Actually, there was more than that. The eight, the eight were the ones that were interested. I, I would say maybe there were, I don't know, 20 that we, we really thought maybe could be a candidate. Got and it. then eight expressed interest and then kind of went from there. And then three gave you some sort of offer? Yes, correct. Got it. And maybe describe the, the variance in offers. Like, like as, you, as you looked at the three offers, yep. how would you characterize the differences between the three? I think, that, well, one was obviously um, the, the dollar amount. Um, that there, Some were... This was by far our highest dollar amount, and the others went, might have been twenty percent lower, uh, but they were definitely in the in the ballpark. Um, they wanted to do things with our products that um, I didn't think we wanted to see them do. Um, for example, one of the companies was just most interested in our mobile platform. That's that's really what they were most interested in. They weren't as interested in our legacy 
you know, kind of foundation software. So that was, that was something that we, we didn't want to see kind of fall off. Um, even to the point where they said, can we just buy this mobile piece? And we said, no, nah, you know, if we're going to do this, we're going to, we're going to do the whole thing. So that's kind of one of the situations that we, we evaluated and said, no, nah, this is probably not a good fit. Uh, the other one, um, I'm trying to remember at the time, other than it being about 10% lower, there was some, something, oh, I know what it was. The, the part of that company that was dedicated to the gaming industry was very small in, in terms of their overall strategy and, and, and scheme of things. So this would become a very small part of a very large company. And that, 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 that small part was only in, in their mind, I think it was like 5% of their company was in the gaming industry. So it was really not a, a, a something they're going to dedicate a lot of resources to. So we didn't feel that that was a good fit either. So you went with the company that had the highest offer that was saw value in both the mobile app and, and the traditional legacy app, as well as one where it would be a significant part of their business. Am I interpreting that right? Nope, that's exactly correct. That it just happened to be that that was the alignment, right? That happened. So we were we were fortunate that that was uh, kind of all came together that way. And so, so from from high to low, it's probably a twenty percent delta between the, the the highest one and the lowest offer. Yeah. Okay. Correct. And and so, how how did you use the the other two offers to get better terms from the winning bidder? Mm-hmm. Well, it was it was an interesting time because. As it turned out, um, the company who acquired us the year before acquired our only competitor. So there was an interesting um, dynamic going on in, in our slice of the industry because the others didn't, didn't actually want um, every to get us as well because then they would own the industry, which they do today um, as a result. So there was definitely that uh, competitive pressure that they were feeling that they needed to kind of step up if they wanted to really play in this, this space. So that was one of them. Every, every being the name of the ultimate acquirer. Correct. Exactly. So uh, the others really were feeling that maybe that they didn't want, um, you know, every to to kind of have both products. So there was definitely part of that And our M and a firm was really helping to play that up. They understood the dynamics of the industry at the time. And they, they understood that, this marketplace was going to continue to expand because of the regulations continue to grow and casinos have to put money into it. So it it was, it was clear to these potential acquirers that, you know, the the software platform that we had had a significant long-term opportunity. So it was just, and it was being pounded throughout the industry uh, in 2014. The government was just telling everybody, look, if you don't start doing this stuff correctly, you know, there's going to be large, large fines coming out. And there were a lot of large fines that were announced in uh, 2014. For example, if you, you remember uh, the um, um, Caesars got hit uh, with that. The, um, uh, oh, geez, the Venetian folks got hit. Um, Sands folks got hit, $45 million fine. So the, there was just all this fear, uncertainty, and doom. I call it FUD that was being pushed around outside throughout the industry. And that really drove up the value and interest in the product that we had created. What multiple of your revenue is this, is the offer? So you said you're around three. What, what did the original offers represent in terms of a multiple on that revenue? So at, we were on pace that year for three. So we, we, we were running probably in the two and a half range at, at that moment in time. So 
when it's all said and done, you're probably five, five to six X. Five to six times revenue. Just an, uh, again, amazing, amazing uh, multiple for a small company, obviously. Yep. Um, yeah, we had significant margins too. I mean, we had very large margins. Hmm. What was it? Pro- I mean, maybe describe the 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 process of agreeing to the the final offer from every. I mean, was there a, a sort of a, a non binding letter of intent where there's a peer to due diligence, no shop clause, kind of a traditional letter of intent? Correct. Maybe talk yep. us through what that looked like. So, trying to recall, you know, the exact dates, but um, somewhere in the middle of 2014, we we got our engagement letter signed with our M&A firm. And then they started the, the, the process of, you know, kind of interviewing candidates. So we really got to the point of a uh, LOI early 2015. Um, it took a little while because there's so many things going on in the, uh, the industry through the end of 2014 with the uh, conference, the annual big conference that they had in October. And it's just, everybody was really busy with year end and, and such. So it really started in earnest the first part of 2015 with a, like you said, a letter of intent. And then uh, once that letter of intent was out there on the table, then it, they, there was that period where they had exclusive, you know, access to the due diligence process. And that due diligence process, geez, that, that went on for probably four months. Uh, it was a lot, uh, a lot of things that, um, you know, we had to assemble and compile and, and kind of to your, the, the point of your show, you know, built to sell. There are so many things that we had fortunately done along the way that prepared us for those requests for that information. Like what? And then there was, a, well, just in terms of how you did your, uh, your, your planning in terms of how you, you manage your resources in terms of how you had your intellectual property ducks in a row. Um, let's see in terms of, uh, you know, how you did your financial reporting, um, in terms of how you managed your collections. And there's so many different things that we have been doing that were, were positive that made it easy for the due diligence process. And then there were a few things which, you know, we didn't have in place that we had to uh, create or, or, or put in place. So, you know, example of that would have been, we used a employee leasing company. So we outsourced uh, that whole, you know, HR process. So, that was something that we had to get some assistance from that company, the, uh, the HR leasing company to, you know, satisfy some of the due diligence requirements of the, uh, the potential buyer. Forgive me. I so, don't know what an HR leasing company does. I've never oh, heard of that okay. term. Sorry. Uh, have you heard of, of a PEO yeah. professional? Yeah. It's a, that's, that's exactly what it is. PEO. Oh, okay. Got it. So this is a firm where they're taking on the, the, the role of, you know, employee deductions, healthcare deductions, and submitting to the government and so forth. That's Got right. It. Got it. And then we, we basically leased the employees from the PEO. So that was something that, you know, they, they weren't accustomed to, the buyer wasn't accustomed to. So that was a special circumstance that we had to, had to address. And we, we didn't know if that would ever be a concern or, or, or anything along those lines, but it's one of those things that popped up that we had to address was in it, terms of reporting and such. Was it an obstacle that was difficult to overcome? Uh, no, it was more, it's like a lot of these things, uh, the, it wasn't so much uh, an obstacle was difficult to overcome, it's just more work that had to be done to, you know, satisfy the due diligence requirements. And this is something that I also learned in this process is that selling the company is a full-time job in and of itself. I mean, I, I was basically, I had two jobs. I was running the company and then running this project, this, this sale project. 
And it was a lot of work to assemble what had to be assembled and, and get prepared. Because the other thing you have to keep in mind, too, is we were doing this uh, confidentially. Um, you know, our, our team didn't really have all the, the details of what was going on. And this is something that was really only done at the, the executive level here. But it's a relatively small team. I mean, did they get the sense right. that something was going on? Nope, uh, not really. Not until really towards uh, towards the end of the process, and that's when uh, you know everything, all the all the T's were kind of crossed, I's dotted. And we were ready to kind of close. That we had to really start to plan that transition. And that was a difficult time, clearly, um, working with our our staff. But didn't know what was happening. And there's a lot of uncertainty in in their world that pops up and. Um, you know, we tried to spin it as positively as possible because it really was a positive opportunity for us to really expand our products, <clears throat> expand our customer base, et cetera. But, uh, you know, a lot of times the, the, the staff members don't always see it that way. So let's imagine you get a phone call from an EO forum mate today and uh -huh. they're about to yep. announce to their staff that they've just sold their company tomorrow. What advice yeah. would you give that EO forum mate in delivering the news? Yeah, that was, like I said, one of the hardest things I think I've ever had to do. Um, and and I, I guess all along, one of the things that I had done, and I'm glad I did this, is it, as we're going through the process of a potential acquisition, I, I did let our staff know that we are doing everything in our power to try and get as many resources into this company to get these products to where we think they, they can go and need to go. So I was constantly reinforcing that. I said, I don't know what it's going to look like. We might have some investors coming in. We might have a strategic partner um, and, and just kind of letting them know that all along the way that we're, we're trying to grow this company. We want to have long-term success. We want them to be a part of our long-term success, but we have to do something to, to kind of en enhance the, the resources that we need to really make this thing um, get to the level we want to get to. So that's one thing I would do for sure earlier, not to say you have to tell them, Hey, we're, we're selling, but that's one thing that kind of set the stage. And as we got closer to the uh, uh, the closing date and the announcements and all those things that go public, et cetera, um, I sat down with the um, the head of the strategic business development group at at every the buyer and said, you know, I'm going to need your help with this transition. I want to be very clear what's what's in it for our employees. And I, I had a number of things that we required up front that you know would protect the employees through the process and and such that you, you would definitely want to try and do. I think anybody would do that for their employees. So they'd be looking out for them for some period of time uh, after this transition. But uh, I asked him to come in and be a part of the announcement because I, I thought it was very important that, you know, they immediately showed interest and, and they showed that, you know, this is an, an alignment and an opportunity to really uh, uh, do something in a, in, a, in a significant big way. And it was important that he was there. So, even though I, I did a lot of the talking, he did some of the talking to really help alleviate some of the initial questions. And then we had another follow-up meeting uh, with him involved too, after the employees had a chance to really understand where this was going and they could really start to, you know, get a feel for um, what this next, um, next chapter is going to look like. So um, I thought that was really important to have him involved. And as you're looking at the next chapter, I mean, do you see yourself involved? And I guess when I'm th when you when you talk about five to six times revenue that you sold the company for, was that was that you know partially paid up front and partially on an earnout in future, or was it all cash up front? Like, how much of yep. your proceeds are are sort of at risk? 
Um, so the general structure that we we created, I thought it, it was logically um, appropriate. So if you thought about what the company had done to that point in time, it was kind of the legacy uh, platform, right? And then we had these new products that we were incubating and working on and piloting. So we, my whole thing was I, I didn't want to lose out on the opportunity to recover the investment we made in these new products, even though they haven't all gone to market yet. So one of the things that um, I asked for was, okay, we want to we want to be compensated for everything up to this point in time for all of our legacy customers, legacy product, you know, all the things we've done with the the, the applications up to that point in time. So that was kind of the upfront one time, you know, here you bought all that, got it. And then we we wanted to create some sort of an opportunity over the coming years to say as as these new products start to get traction and get customers, we believe we should be compensated for that to make up or at least get a return on our original investment that we made on those. So that was the the kind of the structure, the earnout, if you will, uh, for the the years after um, after the the closing took place. Got it. So when we talk about you know five to six times revenue, I'm assuming that includes the variable component that would be contingent on Correct. burnout. Got yeah. It. And for folks that, like thinking about, you know, their own deal, uh, what, what proportion of the deal do you think is realistic to get up front in cash versus sort of what proportion would you, would you counsel people to expect to, to be in some sort of variable future, you know, contingent burnout, if you will? Yeah. So that's an interesting question. I don't know if there's really a right answer. I mean, for, for us, it, it was obvious because of the, 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 the concept I just mentioned a few minutes ago. Mm-hmm. But I mean, the, the one thing I, I did learn is that if you can, the, as much as you can get up front as possible is, is the best. I mean, if you get 100%, that's great. But then you, you, know, you lose out on the potential upside, but that's okay. Then at least you know what you got and off you go. Because for some reason, that the the backside you can't guarantee they're going to perform at the level that you were performing at. You can't guarantee it. As a matter of fact, they won't. You know, they no one has the passion that you have. So um, you may not get on the back end what you were thinking up front. If you if you were the one responsible for it yourself, you you might be able to get those numbers, but they may or may not be able to. And how did it work out for you in, in real terms when, when you, after the, the sale and you're working through the earnout? what was that experience yep. like? So uh, the situation I had was, um, I was uh, brought on for a year to help with the transition. And then uh, for the two years after that was part of the earnout. So my, my role was to help educate uh, their sales team primarily on the products and the opportunities and how to, present it to customers and things of that nature. So that was, that was really separate from the earnout itself. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but that was really a more of a consulting arrangement, if you will, for a year to help with that. So really we're, if you look at it, it was, it was, it was a multi-year earnout on the revenues from the new products, which, you know, that's still up in the air in terms of how that's all going to work out when, when those years come to an end in terms of the, the total ending uh, earnout amount. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how do you feel about it? I mean, do you feel confident you're going to hit your original goals or is it like a long shot at this point? Like, what's your sense? It, you know, it's, boy, it, it's one of those things where you, you would like to see, you always want to see more happening than you than is actually happening. Um, so I would say 
right now, it, it may be something where, you know, hopefully a year from now it'll, it'll feel differently, but it, it, it's not what I thought it would be. Mm. So I don't know if that's a, a good way of putting it, but that's essentially what, what I would say at this point. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and now you're into new, a new business. Maybe talk a little mm-hmm. bit about that. I mean, some people would say, man, winter's pretty cold in Detroit. <laughs> you got all this money. <laughs> Why don't you head south and, and put your feet up for a while? What, what was yeah. the, what's the new business? So uh, actually, it's, it's interesting. So being in, in the EO in Detroit, um, we've had some unique things going on in the city of Detroit, which you may or may not be, know, be aware of. But, you know, Detroit's this kind of this comeback city and the revitalization of what's going on downtown has been pretty, uh, pretty amazing. And along with that has come a, a, a significant, you know, startup community in Detroit. And, you know, there's a lot of things going on in, in the startup world here. And traditionally EO Detroit has not done a good job of, of being integrated in the startup community in, in Detroit. So what I've been trying to do as part of uh, kind of my role in the, in the chapter now is helping the chapter become more closely integrated with what's happening in the core of Detroit in terms of startups and, you know, helping with mentoring and things of that nature. So I've got a couple of companies that I've been uh, mentoring, a couple of software companies um, that I've been working with, put some money into as well as kind of coaching and guiding and, and helping them with their product commercialization strategy and the product development for these applications. One is a a mobile product, which allows uh, you to pay your um, restaurant bill at the table on your own phone hmm. without having to present a credit card to a, a particular waitress. So that's kind of a unique product. The other is a uh, uh, kind of a 180 degrees from that, but it's an online um, guided goal setting, vision board creation and accountability hmm. platform for employee engagement improvement, oh, cool. as well as for uh, helping people that are um, in the retire world, coming up with a way to uh, establish a, a, a new purpose for the second half of their lives. It's kind of a tool set that helps with that. Oh, that sounds great. Where, where do people best find you, Brian, if they want to reach out to you? Is, is LinkedIn the best way to go? Or yeah, what's the best for way? sure. That would be definitely the best way. They can drop me an email. Um, it's, I don't know if you want me to give it to you on the air here, but it's B Ferrilla, F-E-R-R-I-L-L-A, at strategic IT ventures.com all one word there brian farrell thanks very much for joining us thanks john thanks for listening to built to sell radio with john warlow for complete show notes with links to additional resources visit built slash blog John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell, or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W.